gospel today is interesting in the in the wake of the uh, feast of the, the encounter with Christ in the temple. Um, and one of the things that we are celebrating is that what it means to really come to faith is to have a living encounter with God himself. Not just to believe a set of constructs of, of theology and so on and so forth in some kind of a cerebral fashion, but the idea of having a direct interaction somewhere along the line where, where faith clicks because of, of a personal encounter somewhere along the line. And not that God isn't present, and I, I want to emphasize the fact it's not about emotions here, but somewhere where something clicks in such a way that you know uh, and so forth. And I think in a world that, that thinks God is some kind of a big... Uh, um, you know, like Amazon, I just tap into when I want to buy something and, or get something. Um, this is very different because, like uh, I mentioned uh, weeks ago with the story of the ten lepers who were healed, you know, the ten were healed, only one came back to thank him, to thank Christ. And you can see that the nine were excited, they got healed, that, you know, their sicknesses were gone, they could reintegrate in the life of the community. But suddenly one, and, and one who is quote-unquote a foreigner, realizes he's encountered the one who actually defeats disease, who defeats death, and so on and so forth. That's his big thing. There's the who. It's not just the what, but the who. So here we have today in the gospel, though, another encounter where the Pharisees come to Jesus. And this would have taken place what we now call Holy Week, like around Tuesday and so forth, and it's one of the Gospels we read um, for that day. And the Pharisees come to Jesus. Uh, they're really kind of ticked off at him. They're trying to catch him and make him, you know, say something that would really get him in trouble with the authorities, the Roman authorities, with the, the temple authorities, and so on and so forth. So, um, <laughs> he, he already, in, in a couple verses prior to the Gospel, he already silenced the Sadducees, the Sadducees who came because they didn't believe there was personal existence after death. Or they didn't even believe there'd be a resurrection at the end. Uh, so they sarcastically, of course, asked Jesus this hypothetical, there's this woman who's married to this guy, and, um, but the husband dies and leaves her without children. So according to the, to the Torah, you are to marry the person's brother uh, so you can have children, because one of the purposes of marriage is to, to have children. Well, the guy had six other brothers, so each one would marry her, and in sequence they would die. Uh, I'd be very suspicious of, the, of this woman. But anyway, all, they all die, and finally she dies, and the question is, well, whose wife is she in the end? And Jesus goes, you guys don't get it. But he points out that the idea of life, that God is the God of the living, when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the idea is that he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So that there is life, and the fact that there would be resurrection, there would be bodily resurrection at the end, uh, and so forth. So the Sadducees kind of like, you know, they're kind of done trying to debate him. So now the Pharisees come, and... Uh, it's very interesting because it, when it says uh, that Matthew says when they silenced, uh, that Jesus silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. 
and the word, the, the phrase he uses in Greek is the same in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, where it says about the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That's very deliberate on Matthew's part. That who, who this is that they're coming against, they don't realize, is God's own anointed, the very embodiment of God's presence on earth uh, type of thing. And the Pharisees are highlighted because after the fall of the temple, they're the main group that will actually uh, survive the fall of the temple. They will develop what's called rabbinic Judaism, which is very different than what was in the first century because all the other groupings um, you know, kind of were killed off. The priests, once the temple was gone, the priest, there was no priesthood. The Essenes were gone. They either all converted to Christianity or died. Uh, and since there was no temple to protest <laughs> when they lived out in Qumran, etc. So the Pharisees at the time Matthew's writing are the rabbis that are actually condemning the followers of Jesus. And that's why you have this, this friction between these two Jewish groups. Each one saying, we're the real Israel. This is what God wanted Israel to be, and so forth. But Jesus comes and, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And it reminded me of a, a situation, uh, you know, with older kitchen cabinets, which we, we've had the experience, where, you know, after a couple of decades plus of use, do you ever see this happen where one of the hinges starts falling apart? And you have a, a door that, thank goodness for the magnet kind of thing, because what keeps the door closed is not the hinge, <laughs> but the fact that there's that magnet there. So, but without two hinges, the, the door of, of the, on the cabinet's not stable. And so what Jesus is saying that on the entire Torah are these two commandments. Out of the 613 commandments that are out there, there are these two upon which everything rests. And it is, you will love the Lord your God with all your soul, your heart. Um, Jesus says your mind, though the original in Hebrew says with all your might. But I think the mind is, is a good idea, the, the fact of uh, not only thinking about Jesus, but the fact of having that, his view on things, the world view, how we see, how we perceive. Is it perceiving the way God would have us perceive in Jesus? Like you've heard me say uh, many times, if a church is fortunate enough to have the same iconographer, that very deliberately, for all the icons, they will have the eyes of Jesus whether it be the Theotokos, whether it be all the saints, they all have the eyes of Jesus. Because to be a saint, to be devoted to Christ, means we are learning to see through the eyes of Jesus. So the, t the two commandments, and he talks about, but he talks about loving God, and it's very central, even in the, in, from the Hebrew scriptures, this idea of loving God, this loving God. And, in, and the fact that love is not some kind of a passive emotion, but it, it's active mercy. It's interesting that in Hebrew, the word for love, chesed, also means mercy. For his steadfast love endures forever, for his mercy endures forever. You can translate it either way from the Hebrew. And it's marked by patience, generosity, and again, both acts generated by the one who loves. And we say that because we know this, that love isn't just what you feel. Love is primarily what we do. To love our neighbor as oneself is to act toward the other as one would act towards those close to, to us. We treat the stranger, the foreigner, as well as, as well 
as we treat those that we love, quote, emotionally. When the action to each is equal, the love is to each is equal, regardless of what we're feeling. And that was my concern. I remember in the beginning when we were doing outreach and working like with refugee families and some of the people that would, would that, <laughs> the fact that you don't feel like your personality gels with theirs, would that hinder being able to minister to them? And so to love somebody isn't dependent on how we feel or what we have in common, but because we're there to show the presence of Christ and act as Christ toward the other person. So the idea of loving. And anyway, the quote, the quote of you know, Hero Israel comes from Deuteronomy. And I'm going to, here I'll read it. Hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, like I said in the Hebrew. Keep these words I'm commanding you today in your heart. They would repeat this over and over through the day, kind of like how we talk about doing the Jesus prayer, that it would be just repeated, Re repetitious prayers. I mean, right in repetition how we learn? You know, Jesus' comment about prayer that isn't effective is not the idea of repetition. The Greek word means saying words that are meaningless. Okay? That's what it literally means in Greek, bataloyete. But to repeat is a good thing. I mean, isn't scripture in some ways repetitious? Of course it is. But that's how we learn. That's what we learn. Keep these words on community today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Um, anybody that knows anything about Judaism, have you, you've seen this, that, but from the time of Jesus even, they were what they call phylacteries. And in the phylactery was that scripture from Deuteronomy. And you see it wrapped around their arm and on their hands, or you see this little thing, with, it's, and it's a little leather pouch around their forehead, and it has this verse from the Torah in there. And then on the doorpost, the mezuzah, where a, a, a practicing Jew will always leave or go into their home by venerating the image of the Torah. And this phrase, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So, and, and, and probably Jesus might have had those phylacteries on him as well. As a sidebar, this is how to understand the idea of the, in Revelation, the 666 and if on the, the imprint on the forehead and the hand, it's not literally about having tattooed on your head 666 or on your hand. It's literally about what's on your mind and what's on your heart. This is how we have to understand uh, that verse. But anyway, going back to that. So how we treat others, I mean, it's, we show our love of God by how we treat others too. Because otherwise God's just an abstract. You know, in John's first letter, he says, how can we say we love God who we can't see and not love the brother or sister that we can see? So it's interesting that, again, in, in Leviticus, with all these things, a lot of the commandments are very powerful about how we treat other people. It's a, it, it says, for instance, verses 9 and 10, you will not harvest the fields bare, but leave some for the poor. Very potent here. You won't steal, of course. You will not deal falsely. You won't lie. You will not swear falsely by God's name. You'll not defraud a neighbor. 
you will not keep a laborer's wages overnight. <laughs> Corporate America. Will not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the, the blind. Making fun of people who are handicapped and have challenges. And actually help them. Will not render an unjust judgment. Will not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. That's very poor. Very potent. Will not judge. Will judge the, or look at the neighbor with justice. The justice from God's end. Will not engage in slander, speaking badly about people. You know, I remember actually hearing growing up that if you hear people speaking badly about somebody, mind you about what they might be saying behind your back. Will not profit by the blood of the neighbor. You will not hate your neighbor. You will. This is interesting. You will, re, you will correct your neighbor. The idea of tough love that sometimes you have to tell somebody when they're going off the rails. And I don't mean like, you know, I like the Steelers versus the Eagles, so we're going to get in an argument and I'm going to correct them. <laughs> I'm talking about essential real behaviors and issues that are destructive. You will not take vengeance or hold a grudge. That's in the commandments. And you can always tell somebody when they're holding it, because they keep repeating over and over again, every so often, look what they did to me, look what they did, look what they did, look what they did. You know, I forgive them, but look what they did. <laughs> anyway, the idea of how we, we love, do we love like Jesus in that way? And God is there because he's embodied himself in our human reality that he has organically fused himself to us to do that blood transfusion to make us more into Christ, to make us human the way Jesus is human. In that way, to love. And to be like Simeon and Anna who wanted to have that sense of God just by embracing him in that way, of wanting him, of the encounter with him, knowing that he's there. And finally, and this is the amazing part too with the feast, is how does God appear in the most frail way imaginable as a 40-day-old baby? The God who shows his power by giving up control. And that's what love is. I'm not there to control anyone or anything. I'm not talking about responsible boundaries. Don't hear that. But I am saying that we live in a world that says control, power, etc., etc. But God comes to us to say, if you're going to be with me, that means you give up control too. You give up control. And you love people regardless of how they may or may not respond to you. You love your neighbor as yourself. And, and that's why the whole discussion about who, whose son is, de- is the Messiah, because Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees that it's not just some physical descendant of of King David, but actually somebody else. The Lord said to my Lord. It's a very powerful statement. The idea that this God, this person, this son of man who is preexistent, that God would send into the world to actually usher in his rule and his kingdom. And how? Through dying. Through dying and then rising. By again, giving up all control to see the power of God manifest, the power of the love of God.
manifest. So may God bless us with a deeper awareness of all that. May we learn what it means to love God with all our soul, our heart, our mind, our might. To be patient with him, ourselves, with others. That there's a connection with how we love. And think of the neighbor as just happens to be the one that's next to you. I remember when I first got here and we were trying to revamp Philotokos because at the time they were more doing little things about (laughs) fixing up the church and so forth. But the main purpose of Philotokos was to take care and minister to those who were in need, destitute, struggling. And as I, I said this, when we talked about doing local ministry, somebody piped up and said, well, Father, we have to take care of our own first. And I said, who's our own? Who's our own? I said, I think it's the person God puts in our path or right next to us, whoever they are. The neighbor. And what's a neighbor? Just somebody happens to be right there. And loving them with the love of Christ. And we will know that the degree to which we understand how much we're loved is the degree that we'll be able to show that love to others. Because God so loved the world that he sacrificially gives his only begotten son. Constantly does. Amen.